Kathy and I agree that uh, you all have a gem in Kathy here with her passion about primary care and about reading. Um, I'm going to try and get this to go forward. Um, what I want to do this morning um, is have more of a conversation with you. Uh, this is not going to be dialogic presentation where I call out and look for a response back, but I just hope at the end of the time that we have time for questions and discussions about this. Um, in terms of disclosures, I wish there were some financial disclosures to make, but I don't have any. But I do need to say that, I, that I'm very passionate. I have been the chair of the National Reach Out and Read Board of Directors for the past four years through a very exciting and growth time with that. Um, as Kathy mentioned, I'm becoming increasingly fanatic about literacy and early book sharing. And I also need to um, give a lot of credit to the presentation this morning to my colleague back at Cincinnati Children's of John Hutton, who actually is working with Kathy and others here to do a very important research project called um, Rx for Success, looking at the impact of Reach on Read on children in this area um, in Connecticut. Um, and so actually I would suggest that maybe in a year and a half or two you bring John here to talk about the work he's doing not only there, but the very exciting work that he's doing in terms of brain function, which I will be sharing with you this morning. Um, the objectives I'd like to do over the next 40, 45 minutes or so is to talk to you about emergent literacy and the whole issue about brain development with regard to early literacy and, and how it's influenced by modifiable factors. To talk a little bit about early screening, and I hope to convince you that it's really important to uh, think about how do we look at children earlier on in their development with regard to the potential for them reading later on. And then finally, very briefly, talk about some of the elements and things that we can do to create more of a culture of reading actually beginning in infancy. So right now, I want you to look at this, these black marks, and I want you to think about what story this brings to mind? What images, what emotions, what thoughts? Silence. All right, look at this. What stories, what thoughts, what emotions for some of those, the academic and the institution? And the point I'm trying to make here is that a child, an infant, and a toddler, when they look at black marks on a white piece of paper, it makes no sense to them. And what we have to do is develop the networks in the brain and the ability to allow them to look at something that initially looks like this to where it actually becomes words and sentences and images and emotions where they're going forward. And this doesn't happen automatically. We have to consciously think about that. And that's what I want to talk more about this morning with you. So pop quiz, developmental domains. You know, this is 2019 prep. What are the de developmental domains? And I think all of you who are pediatricians or associated with pediatric development know the four classic ones are gross motor, fine motor, cognitive, linguistic, and communication, and social emotional. And I'd like to posit this morning that we may want to think about a fifth developmental domain of emergent literacy. That these other four domains are things that children can learn just being in the environment. But when it comes to reading and literacy, there has to be an absolute conscious aspect 
of helping the brain get wired and children to read. And what's emergent literacy? It's the skills, knowledge, and attitudes that are developmental precursors to reading and writing. Um, and these include skills, and these are the phonological awareness continuum that you're seeing here, those of you who are knowledgeable about the whole issue of reading and how the brain functions with it. Knowledge, what do those words and sentences and images mean? And then to some degree, attitudes. Um, I like reading, I want to read, I want to go forward. I had a conversation with one of your colleagues this morning talking about how different children have different uh, attitudes towards reading and interest and how do we develop that. And you've seen slack, uh, uh, trajectory curves like this for the other developmental domains. And there are emergent literacy skills that happen over a period of time, just like the other four domains. Um, the problem right now, though, is if you think about it, the only time that we universally screen for reading tends to be at kindergarten. You know, the big measure is kindergarten readiness and reading in that regard. We also tend to look again in third grade, and, and I think many of you are aware of the fact that the critical thing about third grade reading is you're learning to read up to third grade, and then after third grade, you have to read to learn. So that's the other time we pay, pay attention to. But the problem is, if you look at this, there's a lot of uh, skills that are developing well before age five. And the issue of constrained versus unconstrained skills, constrained skills are, are um, uh, abilities that children develop that have a finite period of time. An example of this is um, phonological awareness and, and, and uh, alphabet knowledge with that. If you notice, it ends around seven years of age completed. Um, in terms of learning two languages, Glenn, you and I talked about this yesterday, that around seven, eight years of age, if you haven't grown up in a bilingual language, it becomes much harder to learn the second language at that point. And, but you see a lot of these skills begin before age five. The unconstrained skills are things that continue from early on through your whole life. And many of you have seen this. It says the brain, the most development and activity in the brain is in the first few years of life. So what are we doing to think about that in terms of reading and emergent literacy? Um, and there are some things, and I'll talk about some of this later in terms of things we can do early on with that. So what's going on? And, and the issue here is recycling the brain. Now reading's not a new invention. <clears throat> it's over 6,000 years old. We didn't have paper, we had stone with um, hieroglyphics on it. Um, Kathy just shared a, uh, if I may, a, a, a uh, text from her son who has some dyslexia showing this same tablet and then today's um, multiple of images we now get on our phones in terms of going forward. So maybe we're going back 6,000 years with that. Um, <clears throat> but there is no hardwired brain network for reading. This is a really important concept. We have to develop that and I'm going to talk a little more about that. <clears throat> and the, we have to recycle or reconnect visual language and other brain networks to work on emergent literacy. And this needs, should happen in the first five years of life. And there is a predictable sequence in typically developing readers. You go from start with books with pictures, not even with words, and then you go ultimately to the uh, black marks on a page, which I mentioned earlier, that your brain then has to interpret into, sentence, into words, sentences, and, and, and stories. 
And if you have recycling problems, you have reading difficulties, if there's phonological issues, attention deficit orders, speed of processing, these are the types of things that lead to dyslexia, to sort of brain function issues. But also, there are other things going on in the environment, and we're going to talk a little more about screen time. It's a particular passion that Dr. Hutton has about what impact does screen time, which we're facing increasingly with our kids in terms of, of reading and emergent literacy. <coughs> <clears throat> so when you recycle brain networks for reading, the typical reader up on the left you can see um, the left um, is, a, is a surface image of the, the brain and the, and the right image here are the networks, the fasciculi in the inside of the brain. Very active. You, you stimulate a child with dyslexia and you find this is a functional MRI that only one or two things light up. And when you think about it, if you're having problems with those connections, it, does, it shouldn't surprise you that there are fewer areas that light up in the brain in the case of dyslexia. And if this works well, um, this is kind of an animation of what we're talking about. This is the left hemisphere. And if you think about it, these are the areas of the brain that are involved in reading. Visual inputs, word form areas, phonological sounds, semantic meaning, and then uh, top-down attention. And, the, and these areas on the top are really critical in terms of keeping the, the brain focused on the reading tasks and the, and the connection to that. But as importantly, these are the, the gyri we're involved with that, but inside are the fasciculi. These are the, the connecting fibers that bring all these networks together. And this is actually particularly the language network. And the reason that this is important, you notice that the fibers went from finer to more pronounced. What the brain does as you were working on developing these networks is these, those fibers get myelinated, they get strengthened, and they get much more permanent in terms of that connection. Obviously, if you don't do that, later on it's harder to do that and it's harder to develop that. So this kind of visually illustrates this concept of how do we reinforce those fibers, brain networks for reading with that. If you take nothing else away from the, this talk this morning, I keep this image in your mind. The other interesting thing, and I'm going to talk briefly about that, <clears throat> is it turns out that the, the cerebellum, which we classically think about as involved in terms of motor function, coordination, that type of thing, plays a very important role in reading as well. And it turns out um, not just reading but other aspects with it. So as, as you think of the brain and as we're able to do functional MRIs, we're getting a better understanding of what developmental pediatricians have known for a long time of how the brain evolves and the networks involved <coughs> from an empirical way <coughs> for reading going forward. Um, technology is not my forte sometimes. So if you go back and look at the brain now, this is a much more simple um, diagram. This comes from DeHane's reading, reading the brain. It's about 10 years old, but it's very pertinent. These are the very parts of the brain, the gyri, that are involved in reading. Um, and you can read the slide and see what those aspects are. But you can see there's a diffuse um, network of areas in the brain that are really critical for reading. So um, what do people say about reading? And of course, the academy is the uh, the major spokespeople, per person, entity for uh, pediatrics. 
And the Academy says, begin daily shared reading beginning as soon as possible after birth, which, and this is really important, both stimulates optimal patterns of brain development for reading and strengthens, strengthens parent-child relationships at a crucial time, which in turn builds language, literacy, and social-emotional skills that last a lifetime. And I would, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the parent-child interaction, but we certainly appreciate that not only is that interaction in the first few years and first uh, five years of life important in terms of reading, but it also is a powerful way of enhancing the parent-child interaction and social interaction, which has a uh, big impact as well. So how can we build a child's brain that we're talking about? And um, probably two concepts to think about. One is the home literacy environment. This means how many books you have, how much reading you do, what's the quality of reading. And then we talk about book sharing. We used to talk about reading, book reading all the time, but we came to appreciate a couple of things. One, that there are some parents, particularly in some of the patient populations we serve, that can't read. But that doesn't mean that they can't take picture books and that and use the book as a catalyst to have that interaction. They can talk about the pictures. They can talk about the colors. They can talk about the stories with that. Um, so we're talking more about book sharing, which allows for a larger spectrum of interaction between the reader or the sharer and the child with that. And then if you think about the home learning environment, there are quantitative aspects to it and qualitative. And what I want to do now is show you some of the research that Dr. Hutton's been doing using functional MRI to look at some of these issues. Um, he also, um, and I agree with him, thinks of the format, the issue of illustration versus animation um, and uh, screen time is an important aspect and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And there are things that we can do in all these domains and I'll come back and talk particularly about uh, imagination library and reach out and read as a powerful combination. So first of all, looking at the quantitative aspect. <clears throat> in this case, looking at home literacy environment, this, is, this was the issue of how many books and how often they're read, and looking at brain activation during story listening in three to five-year-old children. And if you look, do functional MRI, it turns out that with, with more books and more interactions, there is more activation in the somatic processing, the understanding of things, part of the brain, and also the, the visual imagery. If you look at the qualitative aspect of things, and we're going to particularly pay attention to the interactivity, um, and this classically we talk about dialogic reading. I think many of you have heard that term, but it basically means that you don't just simply open the book up and, and read the words at the bottom of the story, but you actually then have more of a conversation with the child. And this is where the call and response, so you may have a page that shows a a scene with a tree and a dog and a kid in the same, you know, Johnny runs past the tree. Then you start saying to the child, well, what, what color is the, the leaves on the tree and who do you think is behind the tree? You use the book as a way of stimulating more discussion and, and do a call and response going forward with it. And that's the essence of dialogic reading. Well, if, if you look at <clears throat> to what degree there is dialogic reading and, and they were able to videotape and see to what degree parents had that kind of interaction and then do a functional MRI, it turns out that the more dialogic reading, the more interaction there is between the reader, parent, mother in, in this case, um, and the child, is that the expressive language, the complex language processing, the social-emotional integration, and the working memory and attention part of the brain lights up more. 
And if you think about it, that kind of interaction makes sense that these would be areas that would be stimulated um, by that kind of interaction. How about um, interest in the book? <clears throat> this is back in the qualitative. What about the child? How do you get them interested? And this goes back to the, to the cerebellum. And this homunculus, uh, which I think many of you remember well from your anatomy, um, reminds you that the cerebellum, I know I, when I got trained, I thought the cerebellum was just down there to help coordination and motor function and that type of thing. If you look at it, you see that about half of the cerebellum has nothing to do with anything motor with that. And it turns out the cerebellum, uh, Hutton likes to call the supercharger, actually works with the networks within the brain and, and reinforces networks that are going on. And so it supercharges the activity. And it turns out that um, if you have shared reading, and activation that you stimulate, and the more you do that, the more you stimulate the cerebellar activity as, as well, which is sort of an internal feedback loop that accentuates what's going on. <clears throat> How about format? And we're going to spend a little time on this because, as you know, people are using animation, digital format more and more with our children. And what impact does this have on the reading brain? I love this image. You can see how well he understands how to use a book. But what about videos and screen time, educational or otherwise? Hutton did a very interesting study. <clears throat> he took a well-known author, Robert Munch, um, has three stories, I mean this is, Robert Munch is also the author, took three stories and and did this over a period of about 20 minutes. In the first five minutes, the author just read the story. No images, nothing with that. There's a little break, and then he came back and read to the child, same voice, slightly different story, but same kind of context, with just illustrations. <clears throat> and then the third thing <clears throat> was an animation that had the same voice but was really illustrated and there was a lot of active animation with that. And he looked at the brain function in that. And the next few slides took me a long time to figure out and so I hope I do a reasonable job to explain to you. Um, and he also likes to talk about the Goldilocks effect and from the re results of this he felt that the pure audio was not as active in brain development and the animation which we'll see was too hot and the idea of audio and illustration is, is sort of just right. So the first thing is visual scaffolding and visual overload. Visual scaffolding is how there is the connectivity between visual perception and default mode network and the default mode basically is the part of the brain that is um, from what I understand is sort of self uh, regulating and, and view of self. How do you as a, as a person connect with what you're seeing? And what he found, and this is again um, important to understand the significance of the colors, red in this case is good. There's no political comment to this, but in this setting red is good. And what he found is when you compared illustration to audio, that the illustration enhanced the connectivity between the visual perception and default mode. So it allowed the child to have a better sense of how he or she connected to what they were seeing. 
However, when you looked at animation versus illustration, you got blue. Blue is not good, and there was decreased connectivity. And the sense was that what was happening is the brain was working so hard to pay attention to these rapid images changing that it wasn't able to make some of these other connections, whereas the slower approach um, with the illustration, there wasn't as much visual distraction, and the brain was able to take time making those connections. And last night we were talking about this. It's a little bit of the idea of Mr. Rogers versus uh, Sesame Street. Uh, if you think about a Sesame Street, which is very good at keeping attention, but in short aliquots, Mr. Rogers put some of us adults to sleep, but it was great for kids because it really had a continuum that allowed the child to think and go forward with that. Um, the other aspect is the issue of functional connectivity for animation versus illustration. And in this case, dorsal attention, top down, this is where the brain is keeping the, the mind focused on a task. Well, it turns out that animation negatively impacts the ability for the body to focus on a task with that. And as you see again, the blue is not good and that there was a decrease in connectivity with that. It also turns out that there is ventral attention, which is bottoms up in the brain, and this is where the brain tells the brain to, to go to different par parts in the brain and bring things together. It's sort of the organizer of things. And again, animation seems to hijack that and decrease the ability of the brain to sort of connect these parts going forward. On to screen time, <clears throat> which is, I think, quite an issue we're facing. And here, again, remember blue is not good, and what it turns out is that screen time, the more screen time there is, the more negative effect there is on fiber tracks that, that work with executive function, visual association, limbic association, and language. Um, and particularly the arcuate fasciculus, I'm learning more and more neuroanatomy all the time by looking at this, is particularly critical in terms of language that's being negatively affected. You can see decrease by 40%. And if you look by other measures that, again, screen time has an impact on expressive language, on early literacy skills, and certainly home cognitive environments. Um, <clears throat> what's the AAP say about this? Of course, they suggest avoid, mean none, 18 to 24 months old, I think, in this day and age. That's almost an impossible thing to do. To discourage TV and screen time in sleeping areas and encourage co-viewing and monitor contact. So sit down with your child and actually discuss what's going on. And the reason the AAP says that is their immature symbolic memory and attention skills of infants and toddlers cannot learn from traditional digital media as they do from interactions with, with caregivers. Not a surprising statement, but it's important. <clears throat> and of course, one of the powerful ways you can enhance that interaction is reading together. Now, what's the truth out there? What's happening? And this is a study that was done by, by John Hutton. <clears throat> and the good news was um, at age two months, there were a lot of parents in this study who were actually reading. The first part of the bad news was that there were also 68% that had two-month-olds um, TV viewing, and then to make things matters worse, when you look at how frequent it is, half of the families um, had had two-month-olds watching TV um, at, daily, whereas in the reading, um, the majority of the reading was done in only two to four days a week with that as well. So some real challenges that we're facing as pediatricians and people who think about development aspects 
Um, and there's actually descriptions now, Kathy was mentioning, um, survey where one mother said that her child sat in front, her infant sat in front of the TV all day long, seven days a week. So I'm afraid that some of the home uh, child care settings use this a lot as well. Uh, more suggestion that we have a challenge here is over the past couple of years, there's actually been a decrease um, in the number of parents who say they read to children every, their child every day. <clears throat> and, and even the length of time has decreased. There's fewer who are reading at least 15 minutes every day with that. So there's a real challenge that we have in terms of an environment that's moving <clears throat> a little bit away from reading, but more towards um, video and, and um, digital, usually animated media with that. <clears throat> but I hope you saw from these brain images and thinking that, that book sharing does work and there are some things, as I illustrated here, that we can do to have an impact on that. So how do we assess it sooner? Going back again to the emergent literature uh, trajectory, remember that the first time we do this universally tends to be in kindergarten and then critically at third grade again. Um, so what do we do about the first five years of life? How do we do a better job of assessing things at that point? <clears throat> and the Academy recommends that, that we should encourage shared reading as soon as possible after birth, that the central role of the pediatrician is to promote school readiness, which reading and, and emergent literacy is part of that, and it talks about developmental screening at all well-child visits. You know, you're all familiar with Bright Futures. Um, there's an issue with that a little bit, which I'll, I'll come to in just a minute. <clears throat> and of course, the National Center on Learning Disabilities really encourages that early screening expertise of healthcare providers to recognize early signs of reading difficulties should be priorities, that we should be able to try and pick this up sooner and try and intervene sooner so we're not having the struggle in kindergarten and third grade, third grade um, reading. So uh, literacy, literacy screening, um, I don't know if many of you know Monty Python, but the quest Sometimes it feels that way as we're pursuing this stuff, but um, <clears throat> right now it's almost a wait to fail approach. Again, if you wait to, to age five to look at the issue of, of reading and literacy, <clears throat> it may be almost too late. It's much more of a struggle to remediate starting at age five up to age eight than if you've started earlier on. Um, and the, the thing is that there are predicted differences that you can detect at infancy. As a matter of fact, when a child's born, if you ask the parents, do either one of you have reading difficulties, and if one of them says yes, you have almost a 50% chance that that child will have some reading difficulties. Not necessarily dyslexia, but it suggests there may also be in a home environment that is not encouraging reading. So that's at birth you can ask those kind of questions. <clears throat> right now, the general developmental screening that we do, the ASQs um, and SDQs, really don't have reading as an element to it. <clears throat> There's some language aspect, but we don't ask about reading and literacy, emergent literacy. And there are related, reading related screenings that we can do before age five. There's parent report ones, there's the uh, the, the, the ELSs, the Early Literacy Screener and the Emergent Literacy Screener. And these are parent questionnaires. It's five items for the Early liter Literacy Screener and 20 items for the Emergent Literacy Screener. But these are parent report. You can directly administer a reading assessment to the child. There's the Ready to Read, which is sort of the gold standard now. 
But the challenge here that that takes 10 to 15 minutes to administer. And anyone who's worked in a busy primary care setting <clears throat> where the issue of volume and time is, is always a challenge, the idea of having to take 10 to 15 minutes to do a screener is to some degree from a systems point of view a, a very difficult challenge. The preschool early literacy indicator is even a longer one, again, an issue to use as a screener in a busy primary care practice. So this is the challenge, is can you do a, a screening of the child direct versus parent report? And of course, parent report is a little bit affected by certain parental biases and appropriate perceptions that their child is great regardless of how things are functioning with that. <clears throat> um, and so really what we need to do is, is there a time that we can do that direct screening of the child? And it turns out that in terms of brain development and network development, there's a critical time around age three to four where you actually can test the child directly and see whether things are evolving. One example of that is that rhyming, which is kind of a critical measure of movement of the uh, emergent literacy, does happen between age three and five. And so what you can do is set up a test to look and see whether children understand rhyming and dimension. And one of the things that, that Dr. Hutton is doing is he is working on a screener that can be used in primary care that is fun to use but also uh, time-wise quick. And what he has put together is the Reading House. It's actually a book that can be used as a screener. He's actually going to present this at the PAS meetings um, this spring, actually, several aspects of this. And what the Reading House, oh, I need, he wants me always to point out that he was very careful to make this a safety conscious thing. <laughs> The, the first image of this had the child without a bike helmet on. He got a lot of pushback, so he went back and designed a new cover with the, with a helmet on. So very safety conscious aspect. But what this format is, it's a, it's a board format, 14 pages. And then there's a nine item scripted screening measure that screeners use using the book as a, as a catalyst for that and, and a way to, to ask those questions. Um, it's designed at the kindergarten reading level. And he's already done a validation study with uh, about 280 children um, in seven different clinics, both in inner city Medicaid, but also in uh, private practices. <clears throat> and this is an example of one of the pages. And what you see um, is a child surrounded by toys. And the screening questions um, are, these are blocks. Which of these reminds with blocks? Drum, cat, green, socks. Now to you and me, it's kind of a no-brainer that blocks and socks rhyme. But it turns in terms of the brain wiring understanding, it's only around age three or four that the child would be able to say socks rhymes with blocks. Um, and if I can make this work, this is kind of a fun little video. Here is uh, John's uh, CRC doing this with a rather precocious child, but this gives you an idea of what this is. Can you show me the front cover of the book? Sure. Garden has lots of letters. 
Okay, show me the ones that you know. I know B. What else do you know? I know C. Needless to say, this kid passed with flying colors. <laughs> but you can see where it's kind of a fun interaction with children. Even simple things like pointing to the cover of the book, being able to turn pages, is important in terms of this early literacy and functionality. And, and um, he actually does quite well, probably precocious, but um, it, that's what this screener does. And what's important is that this correlates well with Get Ready to Read, which is a real measure. And probably as importantly, the mean time for administering this is about five minutes, and there's a lot of positive reaction to, by providers, parents, and children to this screening process. So there's engagement, and as you know, in terms of screening, child engagement is really is really an important part of that. A disengaged child um, makes for um, screening difficulties and being able to interpret results with that. But. This is only one point in time. This is just at age three to four. Um, classically, in terms of developmental, this is obviously a growth chart. You want to look at over a, a spectrum of time. So how do we think about this whole spectrum? And again, uh, what Hutton is doing is thinking about this and that there are several different elements that really go into thinking about this developmental aspect over a period of time. There's the home literacy environment that I already talked about. There's family history, which I mentioned, in terms of parental reading uh, abilities or habits with that. There's medical risk factors, obviously, hearing issues, um, brain function, other brain functions issues. And there's also, as I mentioned, screen time. So how do you put this all together over a longitudinal process? And another presentation at PAS is um, what John has done is put together a read aloud report which takes all these elements and puts it into a growth curve that then you can plot out where the child is. This actually, his idea hopefully is to have this in a portal that's available. Um, but then you can, over a period of time, see what a trajectory, and if the child's in the pink or red area, that's an area you would say we need to intervene and have some impact. And so you gotta put it all together in a way of saying, how do we think of this overall trajectory? Ultimately, hopefully getting to third grade where a much higher percentage of kids are reading and ready to go on to fourth grade and read to learn. So the final report brings in all this information and aspect that I've talked about to go forward. So part of this, though, is how do you think, and this is something that, that can happen in, in many settings, but in the, in the uh, pediatric healthcare setting, what are the things that you can do to build a culture of reading? And these are things we're doing at Children's Hospital, some of which I know you're doing here at, at the hospital here. With, but we have a, a bookworm a process in the NICU where actually we have parents with preemies, even extreme preemies, sharing books in the We have a picture of the book in the incubator with a child. And the parents um, reading, sharing, sharing the book with a child. And it's interesting, parents love it because in the NICU, they feel like they can't do an awful lot. And the idea that they can, in a profound way, connect to their child by simply having a book and talking about the pictures is a powerful way to, to be engaged. And so there's great um, excitement and interest in the NICU of having this happen. Obviously, in outpatient gen peds, we have Reach Out and Read Imagination Library, which I'm gonna talk about a little bit more in just a second. We also have an issue of Thrive by Five, this kindergarten by five, kindergarten readiness. 
the idea isn't just reading many other aspects of, of social emotional development that's important for kindergarten, but reading is an integral part of it. Our major home visiting program in our, our setting that's Every Child Succeeds, there are many different home visiting programs, actually has a reading component. That's one of the things that we teach our home visitors to do is talk to the parents about reading. <clears throat> we have a major community health initiative and one of the pillars of that actually is third grade reading, um, which I think is as important as anything else we do with that. And then in the hospital, in the inpatient, we actually have reading teams there for children who are there for a long period of time. And finally, um, this is we have a reading literacy discovery center, which actually Dr. Hutton heads, which is focused on dyslexia, brain function, and actually normal reading and literacy development going forward. So just to mention, and I'm very excited about this, and I know Dr. Mr. Schuling, Schmartling is very interested in this as well, is we've been able for the past three and a half years have a wonderful blending of Reach Out and Read in the Dolly Parton Imagination Library. And it turns out I think this is a perfect match. Again, to remind you, most of you know about this, but Reach Out and Read is a discussion at Well Child Visits with parents about the importance of and how to read to their children. And this starts at birth. Now, Reach Out and Read gives a book at each visit, but those visits aren't that many. So along comes Imagination Library, and this provides one book a month starting at birth. So theoretically, if you sign the child up at birth, they could have five times 12 or 60 books by the time they're ready to go to kindergarten. And as you saw before, the number of books in the house makes the difference in terms of brain function and literacy, but also I think encourages parents to do more reading. And to date, we've had, uh, we have over 10,000 children enrolled in the Cincinnati Public School system with this, and we've distributed over a quarter of a million books. Actually, I think it's closer to 300,000 at this point. So what impact has this had? And I think the exciting thing is, is we have kind of a natural experiment, and we are studying this. But it turns out we now have three years of doing this, which means we have three different cohorts coming into kindergarten. We have one cohort three years ago that had one year of exposure to this combination. Two years ago, we had a cohort that had two years of exposure to this combination. And this past year, this past fall, we've had a cohort that's had three years exposure to this um, combination. And those of you who do these kinds of studies know two important things. Is there a significant impact on that? Do you see a difference from one year to the next? And probably as importantly, is there a dose effect? If your theory is that over each year you have more kids with more books, and it's having an impact, it should get better. And um, this is what I've told people is embargoed because, because our Cincinnati Public School System, which gave us critical information, isn't announcing this till later this week, so don't go out and tell people about it until Friday. Um, <laughs> But what we found was this, that over that three-year period, the ability of our cohort of kids to perform well on the kindergarten reading increased dramatically by 15.4% over those three years. And as importantly, there really seems to be a clear dose effect. So it went from 42.9% to 50.9% in the second year and 58.3% in the third year. Now one of the issues, and, and I apologize for the next slide because it's very crude, 
But appropriately, a criticism would say, well, what's happening to the overall increase in reading proficiency in the Cincinnati public school system? And so I put together this slide. Um, it's not as crisp as the other one. But what we have seen over the three years in terms of the general increase in literacy, um, emergent literacy and, and reading skills in kindergarten, is it went from 57.7% in the 2016 to 61.5% in the 2018-19. And you can see that the increase for our cohort is a much more dramatic increase and actually we've decreased the difference between our group and the overall mean for Cincinnati public school system. Of course, one of the challenges that we have is that as more of ours do better, it, it raises that overall, a little, so we're kind of chasing it a little bit with that. But I think this is very exciting because it really suggests that this combination of pediatricians talking to parents about reading and then providing the substrate, the books for that, can have a fairly significant impact. So future things to think about um, in this area are effects of various types of content and format, um, education versus entertainment, digital versus book, and even human versus digital narrator. What are the emotional aspects of story sharing? How does this help in terms of parent and child function? The neurobiological predictors of kindergarten through grade readiness, can we do more than what we're doing now in terms of assessing that? And obviously, ultimately, is longitudinal screening intervention designed to really see what are the most effective approaches and hopefully the National Institutes of Health might fund some of that. So what I'd like to end now, since this is about reading and story, is to read you a story. Um, and the delightful thing about this book that actually Dr. Hutton wrote is it is a way of telling parents how to read a book and how children will react. And so with that, on your lap, snug and warm, every day since I was born, we share a book. What does it do? We can hold it, pat it, and taste it too. Share your voice, a happy song, stretchy words dance along, birdie, and of course the child loves it and goes E. Share each picture, point and look, share how my world is like this book. Again, this is the call and response, the sharing of a book and how it connects to the world around the child. Share fun noises, Rain, dog, lion, rip, woof, roar. Share a giggle when I try them. Share patience. If I fuss or squirm, how many of you had this experience with your young child? As every day I grow and learn. And when this lovely book is done, a kiss, a hug, another one. And so with that, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me here to Connecticut. Thank you to my colleagues, actually Greg Zumas and Sienna Henry, and obviously John Hutton. So more than glad to take